This is the GTC Traders Podcast. The markets, finance, the economy, and commentary. Nothing within this podcast should be viewed as an investing or trading recommendation. GTC Traders is not a registered investment advisor or advisory service. It does not tell or suggest which securities or derivatives should be bought or sold. Analysts, affiliates, employees, or partners of GTC Traders may hold long or short positions within the currencies, derivatives, securities, equities, or industries herein discussed. GTC Traders and Secundus Puer LLC assumes no responsibility or liability for any trading or investing results. Facts, statements, data, and charts posted to the company website or mentioned within this podcast may unintentionally include inaccuracies. Content is for educational purposes only, and outside independent advice should be sought to confirm the validity or accuracy of any statement or claim made. You should ask the firm with which you invest, trade, or deal about the specific terms, conditions, tax implications, and risks of specific markets, and the associated obligations that such trading may place upon you. You should always check with your licensed financial advisor and tax advisor to determine the suitability of any investment to your individual circumstances. No assumption should be made in relation to the performance or accuracy of the methods shown. No claims are made as to the success or profitability of any statements made. The subject of games in my family is, is somewhat of a complicated one. You know, when you hear that phrase, do you want to play a game? <laughs> I, I might get myself in trouble here uh, a little bit. But generally, just my personality type, I'm the kind of individual that wants to sit and have a meaningful conversation about something that's, you know, either the other person is interested in or something going on in the world, our thoughts about it, exchange thoughts. That's how we all interact. That's how we all sharpen our own thought processes. It's how we think. It's how we grow is communication. Communication is literally the key to human civilization, right? That's where I want to be in the middle of. Uh, it's how I learn. It's how other people learn. It's how I can share information. So <laughs> I might get myself in trouble here. Uh, hopefully my in-laws won't listen to this next this next part. We're, we're still new enough to where we're trying to, to share what we're doing here at GTC Traders with, uh, you know, folks that we know that might, be, you know, have known very obviously know I'm in the markets and are always interested in my thoughts. But like, if you're one of the in-laws, don't listen to this next part, okay? But they all know it about me. We'll all be sitting around. We'll all be having this fantastic conversation. And in the middle of the conversation, someone yells out that phrase, and they, everybody looks over at me because they can just see me cringe. And, hey, let's play a game. And it's like, oh, man, we're all having a great conversation here. Why do we have to ruin it with a game? And they are game aficionados. If you're one of those people, great, well, fine, wonderful. You know, um, I'm not. <laughs> Pictionary, uh, you know, board games of one form or another, I, I, I hate them. I just, I can't, I can't think of any other word for it. There's only one board game that I have ever found that I was like, okay, this is a cool game. I like this game. And the name of it, it was an old game, I want to say either from the 1970s or the 1980s. And old school traders are going to love this one. It was called Pit. 
And it was literally about being in the trading pits. I kid you not. If you go out and Google it, you can probably find it under vintage games or something. My in-laws have that game. And hey, man, I'll be in the middle of that. Everybody's screaming at each other over what they got and what they want to get rid of. And they're literally yelling over top of each other. I'm in my glory. (laughs) Oh my God, this is the greatest game I have ever heard of in my entire life, right? But generally, they're not playing pit or whatever that game was called from the 70s, where you literally, that that was literally the point of the game. Literally, the point of the game was, uh, you know, you're in a trading pit. But generally, it's it's something else like Pictionary or one of these other board games. And I just roll my eyes back towards, you know, my skull. And I just, I hate them. And generally, all of the in-laws, and the wife especially, <laughs> will look over at me and say something, you know, akin to, Oh, except him. We know he hates games. Well, that's true and not true. I, as I said, I loved Pit. That was fantastic, man. That was awesome. Uh... I only played it once. And I, I literally, the way I was attracted to this game, because whenever they bring up the section, of the, the topic of board games and the, all the in-laws and everybody's together, right? What do I do? I leave for the other room. I go find something else to do. I, I literally hate those sort of board games. I don't know. I it, To me, they're just fluff. And everybody wants to sit around and have a conversation anyways, and that's what they do over the game, and I don't like the, the, the board games. So, no, I, I take off. Well, all of a sudden, from the other room, I hear this screaming and yelling. And then I hear, like, corn, corn, corn. And I'm like, what in the heck? <laughs> you, just got a, you just got a trader's uh, attention. And I walk in there, and they were playing pit. That's even how I found out about it. I had to walk into the room because they were screaming and yelling. And I looked over at the table and saw what they were playing. And I'm like, this looks awesome. But generally, other games I do not, all these other board games I do not like. However, that comes with a caveat. There are games that I enjoy, but for some reason, the games that I want to play and the games that I enjoy, and it probably has something to do with my personality, uh, can be somewhat of a perfectionist, and I'm highly detailed, thus my nickname. If you've seen the nickname on GTC Traders, uh, The Duke, uh, I got that nickname from a partner who literally said, I know what I'm going to call you. I'm going to call you the Duke of Decimalization because, and he's the Baron of Basis Points. <laughs> he calls me the Duke of Decimalization because I did up a value-added monthly index uh, grid, right? And <laughs> when I did it, all of the uh, returns on a per-month basis as I worked up this grid were to the third decimal point. And he looked at it and he's like, what in the heck is this? And I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, uh, decimal point much? <laughs> I was like, well, I like to be accurate. <laughs> and thus, my nickname was born, you know, the Duke, the Duke of Decimalization. However, the games that I enjoy generally center around that, right? The fact that I, I'm somewhat detail-oriented. I want to talk about stuff that's real, where there's, where there's a stake in it, right? That's why, look at my career. I'm in finance. Why am I in finance? Because I want something with, with a little bit of high stakes to it. You know, it, 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 I don't know. It's just my personality. I'm not going to get into that too much or try to psychoanalyze myself here too much on this podcast. But what games do I like? I love chess. I suck at chess, right? Um, I play any highly rated uh, chess player. I'm not going to win, but I enjoy the game. And I always want to play those games. They want to play the board games. I want to play chess. 
with somebody. I don't even mind being beat. I'm, I'm more than fine with being beat, but practice is the only way you get good at chess, reviewing moves, openings. My endgame stinks. I mean, it sucks bad. Uh, but I enjoy it. As a game, I enjoy it. The you know Having to think tactically, having to think uh, in and out of situations. I love chess. Can't get a, one of them to play chess with me. The other game I like, I'm somewhat better at, but uh, not great. Because I don't have enough time, right? I just, I mean, I'm approaching my mid-50s, and I can't believe the number of projects that I have ongoing far beyond, uh, far beyond this in GTC Traders. However, uh, I don't have enough time, but I love poker. Poker is an interesting game. Uh, poker is a very interesting game. A lot of folks out there believe that poker is about making money. You sit down, you make money. Uh, now... No, it's actually not. Um, poker at its core is a game of information and gathering information correctly and then making the correct decision for the moment in time that you are, you know, where you're sitting there at the table and you have to make a decision with the information you've gathered, if you've gathered information at all or if you've gathered the correct information, or if you've interpreted that information correctly, it's about making a decision based on that. I mean, yeah, yeah money money is sort of a scoring method, so you don't even have to do it with money. You can just do it with chips, right? But it's really analyzing not just information, but several types of information, you know, uh, behavioral patterns. Of your of your opponent and yourself, you've got to monitor yourself. You've got to monitor your opponents in the game. Are they randomizing well? Or are they always playing knit? You know, betting patterns, tells that they may have. You know, uh, they've you know we've all have to manage our own information or output of information or try to keep a throttle on that information. And the cards you hold, the, you know, you're sitting there looking at a, you know. <laughs> Do seven offsuit, <laughs> you know, what sort of information are you going to make, right? Or what sort of decisions are you going to make? It should be pretty obvious in that situation, right? Um, other situations, it's not so obvious. I swear, I could be, every, almost any hand, it's gotten to the point, almost any hand where I'm, I've got pocket rockets, I can almost guarantee you I'm going to lose that hand. Or if I, if I continue to play it outright, like I, I just never get the cards, right? But... Generally, it's a game of information. That's why I love it. I would argue that you need to think about markets the same way. Markets are about, and, and I'm specifically, in, in, as you might tell from the title of this podcast, talking about stock markets, equities, and valuations. You know, how, how can we value these stocks at such a high level? Well, Going back here just a few moments, I would urge anyone uh, that, to think about that topic of valuation and stocks in sort of the metaphor of poker and a poker table. And remember that although we all use formulas and maybe quantified formulas, the second some, you know, uh, maniac donk shows up to the table, you know, all of your poker theory, you can just throw it out the window. <laughs> In other words, 
while we may trade and have you know very quantifiable formulas by which we trade and these formulas can go back decades there's always these other elements because it is mob psychology in action it's a very complex system now let me back up here a little bit just a little bit talk to folks that are maybe listening along because i i whenever i've done podcasts in the past I like to make sure that any anybody could hear it, right? It's old Richard Feynman um, sort of paradigm and, and sort of belief in teaching a subject is that no matter how advanced your knowledge may be, you should be able to explain it so that like a five-year-old can get it. Or that fantastic line from Margin Call, right? Where uh, the guy that's sort of plain folder, you know, he, he looks over and says, explain it to me. How does he say it? I'm sitting here thinking of the movie in my mind because that was such a wonderful explanation of what was going on at the banks. Uh, he looks over and says, ah, yeah, Mr. Sullivan, you're here. Good morning. Maybe you can tell me what you think's going on here. And please, speak as you might to a young child or a golden retriever. It wasn't brains that got me here, I can assure you of that. That is sort of the way I've always approached explaining topics and my thoughts in podcasting is that anybody should be able to follow along with my thoughts, even if they're not trading, right? So if you're not, uh, we do actually have software engineers and security uh, guys at uh, GTC Traders, right? So they're, they're not as much market guys like uh, the rest of us. And so how would I explain it to them, right? When we speak of valuations... How can I think of this? I'm, I'm literally thinking off the... I don't have a script here. I'm just thinking of this off the top of my head. I'm going to think... I, I'm going to give you two examples. Actually, maybe three examples. So you have a Rolex. Let's say it's a nice Rolex. Nice $13,000 piece. As a timepiece. Are you going to pay $350,000 for a $13,000 Rolex? Again, this is this is a Rolex. Let's just say that you could buy this Rolex new for $13,000. Are you going to pay $350,000 for that Rolex? And you would look at me and say, of course I'm not. I'm not stupid, right? Well, why wouldn't you pay that? You wouldn't pay that because it's too high. The valuation that they're placing on this, the offer is just uh, of this Rolex is just far too high. It's not worth that in terms of value off that single piece of information. Now, what if this is a rare Rolex? Whoa, you didn't say that at first. See, see how different factors can affect the price? Another illustration, and this is somewhat of a humorous illustration. This is somewhat a piece of humor that ones have observed about the, the stock market that its general purchase of human psychology in reverse. So what do we mean by that? What if somebody came along to you and said, I've got a brand new, oh, what's a car, or what's it, just a general, I don't know, uh, brand new, and I got to pick a car that most people know, like a Lexus RX 350, right? So let's, let's take a Lexus RX 350, and I'm going to offer you, it's brand new, right out of the factory, uh, the dealer's like, it has three miles on it. There's nothing wrong with it. Uh, we'll guarantee that. We'll put it all in writing, and you can have this brand new Lexus RX 350 for $400. You're going to jump on it. Any idiot would. 
What if that same person came along and said, I'm going to offer you this Lexus RX350, same conditions, brand new off the floor, and I'm going to offer it to you for $100,000. Well, you would refuse it. It's like it's not worth $100,000. What about $200,000? No, now you're even more insane. It's not worth that value. But for some reason in the market, for some reason in the stock market, and this is somewhat sort of playing off of Benjamin Graham's idea of Mr. Market, the Mr. Market analogy, for some reason in the stock market, when somebody comes along and offers you a fantastic deal, and Lexus RX350 for brand new, off the floor, nothing wrong with it, no salvage, clean and everything, for 900 bucks, everybody shies away from it and doesn't want near it. Oh my God, no, it's going to zero. But for some reason in the stock market, when somebody offers you that same Lexus RX350 for $100,000, they chase it. I'll give you $150,000 for it. I'll give you $200,000 for it. And the valuations are just insane. But they do it in the stock market. For some reason, human psychology is reversed. What you normally wouldn't do, people chase and love to chase the price even higher. And they, because they fall in love with the story. The point is, that's what we're talking about if you're somewhat newer uh, and us talking about valuations of the market, right? Just catching those folks up. Now, another aspect I want to discuss here is that there, there's a lot of questions out there like, how can anybody, right? And these are by traders, specifically more short-term traders. How can anybody get involved in valuations you know, with the current state of the market. I've discovered over the years that if I have one specific skill is evaluating other players that are sitting at the table without necessarily believing all of what they may think about a particular topic. But I, I, I do think it's one of my skills. I, I'm, I'm somewhat adept at discriminating information. And I like to present the other side, what the other side may be thinking, or things that you know others may not have considered. Call it a contrarian view. You have to be a contrarian somewhat to be a valuation uh, investor. And one of my many approaches, I do short-term trade as well, but one of my many approaches is valuations. But I seem to have a particular skill for looking at data that works even against my own biases. All of us have biases, and I'm going to talk about that here in a moment, especially with short-term traders. Uh, all of us have biases of things, well, I don't understand that. And we don't want to consider, well, what may the other poker players at the table think? Why may they believe it? You have to entertain that idea if you are going to be effective whatsoever. And I'll even tell you why you have to have uh why that is effective, why you have to have that skill at looking at other information and being a contrarian and thinking about all of the pieces, all of the cards on the table, all the information you've gathered. The reason why that's effective is if you have been trading for any length of time whatsoever, you will understand that sometimes things don't go your way. <laughs> sometimes. Right? There's, there's many times where it's like, well, why did this happen? And people will get emotionally angry over this. I don't understand this whatsoever. Rah, 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 rah. Well, and, and it's harder for them to make decisions from that point forward in sort of a cool, collected, detached, unemotional way. 
which leads to further mistakes. So my point is, sometimes when we're wrong and we've considered all of the information we've gathered on the table, this poker table, so to speak, in a detached way, look at what the other side may be thinking. When we are wrong and we lose, well, we can just move on to the next decision and think, hey, maybe, am I, maybe I'm wrong here. Let, you know, maybe, maybe I need to rethink my stance, which always leads to better uh, decisions moving forward. And, but that question comes up, right? Sometimes when ones haven't considered all of the information, all of the, let's put it this way, all of the pieces in play, what are the cards laying on the table and what information have we gathered thus far that we can consider when we're about to make a decision? That's what poker is. Well, that's what the market is as well. And far too often, many, especially, and I hate to say it, but I'm one of those guys that just like, I says, I just sort of call it, it got, it's got me in trouble, but I call it as I see it. A lot of short-term traders will think, well, you, you got to be insane to, to buy, uh, you know, stocks for the longer term here. I, I see the point, but have you considered all of the pieces, all of the information that we have on this metaphoric poker table? And I think it's very important to do that because that question comes up and I see that question come up over and over again. How can anybody get involved in valuations you know, at these levels? How can anybody want to buy something? Well, remember that all, though in risk events, so how do, how do I want to phrase this? I'm going to give away a little bit of a freebie here, right? There are quantifiable ways you can determine value. And when you use those quantifiable ways, and there's, there's a few, there's not just one, there's not just the ones that I even enjoy using, uh, but you can find value as a binary piece. Like ABC company is going for $2. And when you apply this math, it should be worth 20 And everybody's like not touching it and it's being completely ignored. Now, all of the other surrounding stocks in the area, right? All the other uh, surrounding equities, uh, they're, you know, they're going for $5 million. They're just at extreme valuations. It doesn't change the fact that that individual equity, that individual stock is going for two bucks. And it's a great value for what they do. And you can compare that in a number of ways. Now, we do know that in risk-off events, all, basically all assets go to one, right? The correlation of all assets go to one in a risk-off event. That's a little bit of geek speak. But generally, it doesn't matter if you've got a great value. <laughs> it doesn't matter if you've got an extreme value. Uh, everything, you know, correlations go to one. In other words, they're all going to fall in a risk-off event. But I'm diversified. Yeah, you're diversified in what? Just a bunch of different kind of equities. However, if you can find good values, and they're generally always out there. This is something Buffett and many other value guys have talked about. There's, um, there was a tech... Um, hedge fund manager i heard years ago say this and i and i genuinely believe it's true that during risk off events value provides its own leverage actually it doesn't even have to be a risk off event so in other words yeah those stocks that are going for a hundred thousand dollars they're going to fall down to two dollars but your stock at two dollars is going to go down to a buck fifty it's also going to fall but it provides its own leverage and downside risk protection and, and, and when basically the value reasserts itself on this thing, eventually it should be ri rise more than, right? That, that's just the basics. So that's first off. 
I, I just want to lay that as a general principle that I do believe you can find value everywhere. And there's many risk mechanisms, you know, risk mitigation mechanisms that you can do to protect yourself and buying valuation uh, pieces, uh, you know, during when when there's many there's many how, how do i phrase this i'm trying to word things carefully here uh there's many things you can do to protect yourself right and still buy valuations even in an overall market that has extended valuation so that i just want to lay that as a general principle it's something i believe you may not believe it and that's fine now the other thing is i want to come back and bring back that poker analogy please remember this i have my beliefs that you may disagree with no no man no duke i, I think you're wrong man you can't you can't find uh value in this market everything is too stretched everything is selling for too high of a price if you're new that's what we mean when valuations are stretched you know everything's too peak valuations are too peak man it's like look, look at the market well I'm going to bring back that poker analogy. One thing I would like to tell you is that remember, we all have our quantifiable rules that we like to use, but there are other participants at this poker table and they all have their own, their own ways of getting that money. And we all think differently. And that's good because that's what makes a market. We all want the money. They're all not you and they may think differently than you and if you are a good poker player you have to think about that you have to evaluate that you have to look at your opponents and think i believe xyz about valuations in the market they may not believe that and i know my my god you know this is something jocko willings talks about and i i really i really enjoy that he talks about that a lot about getting trapped in your own head what's the best way to approach this right well, when you approach markets, you have to have a way. You have to have a, a particular manner in which you approach the market. And so, yeah, you know, you obviously are going to believe that that is the way to approach um, markets to make money. But you can become trapped by your own thought process and think that is the only way to approach markets, and it's not. There are other people sitting at this poker table, so to speak. And they are, you have to view them as different participants. I mean, think about them as different participants. Over there, right, you look across the poker table, you know, right across from you. And you've got hedgies, right? You've got hedge funds out there. And, and all of those hedge funds, they, they disagree among themselves. But as a category, that's a category over there. Are they long only? Are they long short? You know, they hold beliefs that are different than yours. They are doing things with a skew or a particular speciality that is different from you. Asset managers in one form or another. You know, and when it comes to valuations on equities, they all think something different. They get a spot at the table. There's individual investors like you and I, or perhaps we're in a single family office structure or a closed proprietary structure. Uh, you know, we get a spot at the table. Mutual fund managers trading to the mandate that their fund specifies, and there's myriads of them, they get a seat at the table. Exchange-traded funds, right, that are physically representing their ETFs. So there's synthetically represented ETFs and there's physically represented ETFs. Well, they get a seat at the table. Broker-dealers, 
private equity firms. These are all different players. You're coming around the person sitting next to you. You know, it may be an endowment or a foundation sitting at this metaphoric poker table. Sovereign wealth funds, that's somebody else. Pension funds. Insurance companies. You know who else is sitting at this metaphoric poker table with us? And there's quite a few of them out there, actually. Are folks like my wife's grandfather. He, he was a fascinating guy. He was a World War II veteran. Uh, I got to talk to him at, at length, obviously, right? I'm his granddaughter's husband. Uh, but we had some really good conversations. Lived in a nice place. Not extravagant, you know. But he had like four acres in Pennsylvania. Four or five acres of property. You know, something very, very nice you would consider for, I don't know, I'm thinking the 1960s. And we'd sit out on the porch and I loved it because, you know, the way he'd always start off is like, hey, would you like a beer? You like beer? It's like, me and this man speak the same language. It's sort of funny because once uh, he, uh, <laughs> he told me he actually had a very frank conversation about his concern for his kids or his, and something. And I'm, I'm sitting here talking with a World War II vet, right? He served on a submarine as a torpedo man. And, and he was some, known somewhat as a gruff man, you know, the greatest generation, World War II, a submariner no less. And uh, we had this very frank conversation about just how concerned he was for his children. And, you know, he, he had begun to think about when his life ends. I'll get to that here in a second, what we found out he was doing for his children. Uh, and I'm just sitting there thinking, man, I'm, I'm just like, I'm just your granddaughter's husband. But he, he really opened up to me. And, and it's funny because I told his, his, uh, his children that, right, my, my wife's uh, aunts and uncles and mother that this, about this conversation. They were like, he said that? Really? <laughs> <laughs> this our father said that but he was you know he was he was a he was a deep well as they say and uh but i'm i'm just sitting here thinking right I, i'm i'm talking with a world war ii submariner a torpedo man actually many years later we took him on an actual world war ii submarine and we went down into the submarine and we're thinking okay man this is this is where he gets emotional and choked up and thinks about all his memories. And we can see him looking through the various rooms. And he's a torpedo man, so he goes up you know, to where the torpedoes are. And, you know, they're talking about where the, where the guy slept and hot bunking and all this other stuff. And we're, we're just thinking, okay, he's going to lose it here in a bit because this is some pretty heavy stuff, you know, that he saw as a submariner. <laughs> he looks at the rest of us and says... I had to be crazy to get on one of these things. <laughs> uh, but he did. But we, we would sit around and talk. Well, it was only after. And we'd sit around and talk and drink beer. It was awesome. It was only after he passed away, though, that everyone found out that actually, for decades and decades, this man had been buying blue chip stocks in various sectors, taking the dividends and reinvesting them for like 45 years. There were millions and millions of dollars. Everybody's like, oh my God, he didn't tell anybody he was doing this. 
<laughs> like, and I'm talking like for decades and decades and decades and decades had been buying B- IBM, Chevron, Exxon, McDonald's, Coca-Cola. It's like nice surprise for the family, let me tell you. But my whole point is that this is a type of market participant that is out there. And I think you need to see all of those different parties that we just mentioned, the pension funds, uh, ones like my gr- wife's grandfather. And by the way, this is that whole category of like my wife's grandfather. And there's many, many, many that do this. Don't really care about market levels because over the course of 50 years, when that is the particular strategy in reinvesting dividends, it really doesn't matter. So they don't care. They could care less about stock market because it all just averages and evens out in the end, right? They're just compounding and reinvesting the dividends through dividend reinvestment. Regardless, in your mind's eye, when you think about markets, when you think about the stock market, when you think about equities, I think it's very beneficial to see those different categories as different players at the poker table. And we are just one player at the poker table. And there's a danger. We can get locked in our own head about what we think about valuations. And you have to remember that as you sit down to this poker table to play this game, there are other players and they don't think like you. Nor should they. Nor should they, because otherwise there wouldn't be a market. (coughs) Excuse me. Yeah, otherwise there wouldn't be a market. And so they all should think, you know, differently from one another. I do believe over time, uh, math and reality has to take place. But there is an aspect of investing. There is an aspect of trading where it's just these different participants sitting down to this metaphoric table to play the game of what we all believe. Eventually, the last turn of the card, the river, will be reality. But that can take a long time. And in the meantime, you have to sit there and make money in markets. So I think that is a beneficial way to look at things. I'm not saying give up your beliefs. I'm not saying that you don't have a great quantifiable process. I'm not saying that you don't make money. I'm not saying that, you know, who knows? Perhaps you're better than everybody else out there. But I think it's very foolish not to sit and try to think about what other participants in the market may be seeing, trying to find things that you may not have initially thought of. Because that's going to lead to better decision-making process, as we said earlier. And when something goes wrong, and if you've been in this business for any length of time, believe you me, things will go wrong. Sometimes in an epic manner. But when things go wrong, you can make decisions in a better manner. To actually, to, to sort of carry forward uh, this metaphor of poker, right? Uh, don't tilt. That's what they say in poker, right? When a a player is getting involved in making decisions, 
and he's getting locked inside his own head and he's not considering all of the information properly. He's not sitting here in a cool, detached manner as he plays these poker hands. He can, as we or she, can tilt. Tilt, in other words, they start making irrational decisions, right? Their, their emotions start getting the best of them. Maybe they got some bad beats. Maybe they were holding pocket rockets and it just didn't turn their way. Somebody got, got you know, on the flop to the to the river, to, you know, turn the river. We, we got <laughs> three deuces and a seven. <laughs> and they're sitting there holding, right? So, you know, it's just some bad beats and they get more emotional or maybe just some bad decisions, whatever, whatever the case is. And they start getting emotional and they start making irrational decisions and they start getting reckless. They've tilted. They've gone tilt. And that just, you know, then it just spirals and gets even worse from there. So that's all we're saying. Okay. Now, Again, I'm going to go back to that question because it's something I've seen again and again and again. How can anybody buy the stock market? The stock market is so high right now. The stock market is so high right now. How can anybody be buying here? Well, I would agree. I would agree, and I will say for the sake of this podcast, I do feel that valuations are stretched at the moment. Just my personal belief. Yeah, I still believe, as I said earlier, you can find values out there. And not only can you find values, but in case something happens or, you know, something, you know, we have a we have a big downturn or, as we say, a risk event. There are ways to protect yourself. So I there's there's two of my beliefs. You want me to specify what I think, right? Just my thoughts, not yours. A look over my shoulder, as I've said in the past, then. I do believe value can be had. I believe there's ways to protect yourself, but at the same time in the market overall, I do believe I do believe we are quite stretched at the moment in an overall sense when looking at the entire market. Okay. You know, I'm I'm not I'm not buying some, you know, <laughs> I I'm not going to be buying some tech company that's already rallied like, you know, 80%. <laughs> That's just the basics, right? Actually, you know what I'm sitting here? This is what's funny when you gain a lot of knowledge about quantifiable processes. I swear to you, I don't have a script here. This is me just talking. This is just the Duke just talking. As I said that, I thought, I was (laughs) thinking... Let me walk you through some of my processes. They said I'm not going to buy some tech rally that some tech stock that's rallied 80%, right? Um, what I was thinking of is like rotations. There's there's a concept we have of rotations and how markets can rotate. Very very old. This is not a GTC traders thing or the Duke or anything like that. It's like not, everybody should know that as a basic. The markets can rotate, and that's what I'm thinking. I'm not going to buy a rotational high. But literally, as I said that, I was sitting there thinking, of course. (laughs) That's what's funny about when you get to know quantifiable processes. I can actually think of a process that was designed for that situation of how can you get involved 
mitigate your downside via sort of a gray box rule set and start riding riding that higher it's just funny i was just sitting here thinking that right it's like obviously you know uh you know with with and i do believe as an overall market i'm going to say this many many times to this so there's no confusion i do believe overall the market is very stretched. The market is, you know, as far as uh, valuations. And I'm not going to buy, you know, at a rotational high. But then again, there is that one process that was designed for that situation. <laughs> See, this, this, that, that all highlights my point. There's no one right way to trade the market. We all have something that resonates with all of us. For guys like myself, there's a lot that resonates with me, but as to why we trade the way we trade. But there's no one right way to trade. And and sort of just that thought process that, that I had as I said that sort of illustrates that. There's actually a quantified, you know, a quantitative process for getting involved in those sort of scenarios to ride it higher as long as it will do so while protecting your downside. I don't know. It's just funny. I was just thinking of that as soon as as soon as those words left left my lips. So, okay, that's sort of I I hope I've specified enough of our beliefs here on on sort of a foundational level. Now, there's one more aspect I want to talk about on a foundational level, and I'm just going to back up a few seconds to that whole aspect of the stock market is high. The stock market is high. How would you, and I, and I do believe, as I've said, you know, yes, our, our valuations are stretched. But what do you mean by that? And they're like, well, just pull up a longer term chart of the, of the stock market. It's high. I would agree with you. I believe that valuations overall in the whole market are rather stretched at the moment. They've rather peaked. I still think, as I said, I'm just going to reiterate, there are still individual value plays out there that can be made in such a market, knowing that in risk events, all correlations go to one and everything can fall, and there are ways to protect yourself. But that whole concept, the stock market is high, compared to what? Look at any chart of like the stock market from like 2003 to the present, right? And it's like, yeah, see that big, huge run-up? Well, you do realize that that image can be tricking you, right? It's like, no, 2003, we hadn't really run up a lot, like to 2007, then we had this little tiny fall off, and then, man, look at, look at the rally since then. You do realize that data is tricking you viewing it in that manner, right? Because you just, you just drag that chart a little bit, and I would suggest if you're looking at one of these long-term charts the way the data has to be presented to you and i'm going over a lot of concepts here and just explaining them and i understand that earlier i was talking about efficient market theory i was just trying to put these in metaphors uh for folks you know like richmond Feynman, you know uh, and i'm going other over more detailed concepts that we have specified amongst investors and traders but i'm trying to make this listenable for everyone right so anyways you take this whole concept that the stock market is high we'll drag that chart back a little bit so that it runs from like 1992 to 2008 then all of a sudden that little tiny run-up from 2003 to 2007 doesn't look so tiny anymore does it 
that looks large. Drag it back again, right? From like 1980 to like 2000. And what, you know, if you look at a, a, any chart of the stock market, and again, I'm going over a concept. We have another name for it, but I'm just trying to explain this in, in plain English for the listenability of a podcast. But you look look at any chart of the S&P 500 index from like 1980 to like 2001. All of a sudden, the, what you were seeing as this little run-up doesn't look so little anymore, does it? Man, look at that run-up from like 1995 to like 2000. And it's just, it's just these tiny little moves back in 1980, you know, 1987. It just fell just a little bit. It fell just a little bit, but then it just rallied like crazy to 2000. There's actually a technical name for what we're doing here, but it's, it's, I'm just trying to show you that, that looking at the stock market is just in the sense of it's high and therefore it has to fall is, is erroneous thinking. Because then you, you back up that chart again to like 1968 to 1987. And that little tiny pullback we were talking about in 1987, that it looked that way on a chart, is now a massive crash in the market. What I'm telling you here is that charts can fool you. There's, there's actually a cognitive bias for that, and uh, there's actually a name for it. But I'm just trying to explain to you that the charts can fool you. The stock market's always been high. The, you know, I guess that depends on how you determine what is high. But the stock market's always been high, okay? <laughs> and we're on for the mother of all crashes. That's what those, those uh, doom porn guys out there, we're in there for the mother of all crashes. Well, yeah, they come along, and, and crashes come along, and... You know, it's that whole line from margin call. We can't help ourselves. It's what we do, you know. So I would just say that, that this whole idea of the stock market is high. It's always high and it always crashes. The other thing I would say is if you're looking at a chart of the S&P 500 index, I think you're looking at somewhat of a, an erroneous way to look at markets. Standard & Poor's 500 is one basket of stocks, right? 500 stocks. It's also balanced. I've, I've heard new guys that try to comment on the market like they've got some vast experience and I'm going to let you in on the deep, dark secrets of the market, right? Those guys. Uh it's all being manipulated and you don't know the truth. Well, yeah, I trust me, I'm in finance and I've seen some scuzzy, scuzzy things in my time. Uh, but no, that is incorrect. Uh, they, you know, did you know, this is what they'll say. Did you know that they'll take stocks out of and put stocks into the S&P 500 so it manipulates it? You don't know what the market is really doing. It's a way to manipulate it and make it look better than it is. A lot of those companies went bankrupt. It's manipulation. Baloney. Uh, Standard & Poor's 500 is one view of stocks. 500 stocks. 
and they publicly announce whenever they're doing some sort of rebalancing. They're taking the same thing with the Dow. You know, they'll say that about the Dow. The Dow is manipulated. You know, all of those companies that were in the Dow went bankrupt and they had to put new ones in. Well, that's any economy from like the beginning of time since we've had companies. Companies come, companies go. That's not the purpose of an index. It's not to show you the health of an economy. The Dow or Standard & Poor's will come up with, hey, we're going to look at 500 stocks. They, If you go out and read it, I'm not going to read the whole thing to you here, but they will tell you exactly how they comprise their index. Hey, we got a method, right? We've got a method for comprising an index. And um, this is the method that we're going to use. We're going to use 500 stocks. We announce publicly when we take one out and put one in and why. And here's how we weight them. What you're looking at, in a manner of speaking, when you look at like something like the S&P 500, quote-unquote, index, is a portfolio. It's like looking at a portfolio. Really? I mean, think about it, right? You could look at the returns of some hedge fund. What is a long-only, longer-periodicity valuation hedge fund do? Try to make the returns always go up, right? I mean, I mean seriously. What if you looked at the at the return graph, and the value-added monthly index grid, or or the graph, I should say, and the grid of a long-only valuation hedge fund in U.S. stocks? You're going to see a return graph if they're talented that just seems to always go up. Are you going to short it because it's high? Just from some visual objective, or completely subjective, I should say, completely subjective idea. Well, look at it. It's high. Well, they're a hedge fund. They're going to be taking stuff out and putting stuff in. And they're going to try to make their returns go up. That's what hedge funds do, or should be doing. When you look at the S&P 500 as an index, or the Dow as an index, think of it in that way. It's an index, so it's different, right? It's not, you know, like a he- what a hedge fund's doing, but think of it in that way. There's no manipulation. There's no grand conspiracy. They tell you how they weight these things. They announce publicly when they take a company out, then they put a company in. So as an index, just view it that way, right? So the idea that you're going to short it simply because it's high on a completely subjective basis is foolish in the extreme. It's also why like you'll see these really new guys that will learn about something like a I don't know, MACD or something, right? And they think, "Haha, look at it. I looked at this is the dumbest. This is like the definition of dumb." Uh, they they learn about something and they think they don't understand the tool, they don't understand the overlay, they don't understand non-prediction versus risk mitigation and tr- trigger entries. They don't understand any of that stuff. So they take this tool that was used and developed for a very specific thing and try to apply it to like a five-year chart of the S&P 500 index. And see, that's why it's going to fall. <laughs> like, Okay. <laughs> Let me know how that works out for you, okay there, buddy? But 
again, that's just my thought. Well, it's my very experienced thoughts, but I'm just going to tell you that's not going to work out. And that's how I would ask, or that's how I think, maybe in a cool, detached, non-emotional manner, you should think about indices. Look at the Wilshire. Look at something like that. Look at something a little more broad-based. I know guys that like looking at the Russell. Again, it's still just an index, but maybe if you want to look at more of a overall view, look look at what the Standard and Poor's 500 is trying to do as an index, and then look at something like something like the Wilshire is trying to do as an index. They're trying to do different things. If you want a broad view of how an entire market is doing, you know, all stocks everywhere, I think looking at the the SPUs or the S&P 500 index is foolish in the extreme. Look at something like the Wilshire. Some guys look looking at the Russell. Okay, so I wanted to address that point. The stock market is high. Well, it's always high and it always crashes. And what do you mean by the market? What market? What index? All stocks everywhere? You looking at the Wilshire? Are you looking at the Russell? Or are you just looking at the S&P 500 index? Just some things to think about. Okay. Uh, I also want to address a second point here. Uh, this is just a belief of mine. And it has to do with this topic of, well, the stock market is high. Okay. You know, like I said, I, I would agree with you. And I, I agree that valuations are peaked. I will reiterate. Just, you know, that's what you do in public speaking. You repetition to emphasize a theme i do believe at the moment that valuations are peaked i do believe individual value plays can be found and you can put risk mitigations or plan to put risk mitigations into place to protect yourself in the case of a risk-off event now am i talking about passive investing here no no i am not I'm talking about more of a professional approach, longer-term valuations, and people who are buying and plan to hold something for a while. Which, you know, yeah. Anyway, (laughs) I, I could go down a whole rabbit hole there. Trust you me. But am I talking about passive investing? No, I am not. No, I am not. As a matter of fact... I think the whole concept of active versus passive is somewhat of a misnomer. Uh, I, I don't I don't believe there is such a thing as passive investing. Let me tell you let me just talk for just a moment here about that whole argument, active versus passive argument. I think the people that get involved in that, there's, there's two sides to it. There's two things that really drive that argument. The passive guys don't want to do a lot, or they, don't, they haven't got a handle on their emotional discipline, and they just want to do one thing, and it'll always work out for me if I just stick to doing this one thing. I think that is foolish in the extreme. First of all, I think to be a healthy adult, you should develop your emotional discipline. Uh, I don't believe in such a thing called passive investing. I don't believe in it. It's all active. And I'm, I'm not going to leave the active guys alone either, even though I would consider myself a very active person in the markets. 
Excuse me. Taking a bit of sip of a coffee here for a second. As a matter of fact, I would say that I'm not like pointing at guys who are active saying, you know you have this fault. I firmly believe this. This is something John Taylor Gatto would often mention that he that he argued with himself, right? So somewhat, I'm pointing the finger back at myself saying, hey man, you know you're like this. You know you have what what could turn into a flaw and a blinder and create a bias in you, so you better address it and you better recognize at least that it's there. So I'm not just like, hey, I'm just going to make fun of everybody. You know, it's like I'm not pointing at active guys. This is where your fault's at. This is also something where I'm being a little self-introspective and thinking, okay, is this, do I have this, and I think I do, <laughs> uh, do I have this fault in my thinking? Make sense? What am I trying to say here? Very often, um, sometimes this argument, what drives this argument is, okay, you have the one side, as I said, the passive guys that don't want to do a lot. They're lazy. I just want to do this one thing, and I just, I, then the money should come to me. That's a little bit entitled. A uh, little bit of entitlement just in, in the way the thinking goes. But sometimes I'm not going to leave the short-term guys or us guys who are active or consider ourselves active alone either. Sometimes ones who are only short-term traders, right? They don't get involved as much as, um, I'm a weirdo. Okay, I'll just tell you that right off. Most folks in the market, most men and women who are in the market, they don't... Um, they specialize in one thing. I'm somewhat of a weirdo in that, yes, I short-term trade. I'm a multi-strat guy, multi-strat manager, if you want to refer to me that way. I can do quite a few different things. You know, global macro uh, thoughts, uh, you know, valuation approaches, short-term trading. Most in finance don't really have that. Uh, you find it a little more among quants. Uh, but many men, the, the whole point here I'm trying to make is that many, many folks in, in finance are just like short-term traders and trust people say short-term trading doesn't work. You know, the, the, the lazy guys that just, I'm a passive guy, right? Short-term trading doesn't work. Au contraire, mon frère. Uh, databases that are public are filled. And I mean, filled with, you know, Barclay hedge or, uh, IASG or other databases are filled with guys who actively short-term trade are wildly profitable. So you're wrong and you're demonstrably wrong if you say it doesn't work because there are databases of active asset managers out there who are only short-term and they're making money. And they've been there for decades. And they've been an asset management firm for decades. So if you're one of these passive guys that says, oh, no, 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 short-term trading doesn't work, you are wrong. You may not have figured out how to, or maybe that's just not your thing, which, hey, more power to you. But you cannot say short-term trading doesn't work, and that's why you're passive, and passive is the only thing that works. It's just demonstrably false. Most people who say that do not even recognize that there are public databases out there filled with the monthly grids of asset managers. And they have to specify their strategy, and many of them are short-term traders. Well, many of these short-term traders 
being somewhat derisive, even as I am, of people that just want to be lazy and make these blanket statements that are false, they don't specialize or they don't have a lot of deep knowledge, nor should they. They should, you know, hey, you know, stay in your lane and all of that, right? They're really good at what they do. So they don't really understand sort of valuation, a quantified valuation approach, longer-term valuation approach. And so they, and I'm going to be honest, guys, you know you have this. Again, I'm one of those guys that if there's a room and everybody sort of knows it, I'm the guy that raises his hand, says it, and then gets in trouble for it because, you know, you're not supposed to say that. But a lot of short-term traders would really love to see these, these passive guys punished. And so they want emotionally, just sort of want a huge market meltdown. Just for no other reason than to say, huh, yeah, it's not all fun and games, is it? Heck, I'd be lying if I said I didn't have that that bent myself there's a part of me that's like during meltdowns i'm like hey oh uh where's all the passive guys this is all you got to do yeah yeah where are you guys at huh, huh? suddenly you've gone all silent <laughs> so the short-term guys have that and i i gotta admit there's a part of me that that thinks that way as well and the passive guys make statements that simply aren't true and say, well, short-term trading doesn't work. Demonstrably false. Databases, professional databases of asset managers who list their strategies are very public and out there. And yeah, I don't believe there's such a thing as passive investing. I don't believe in it. I think it's all active, ac active, excuse me. And it's just a question of periodicity. If I'm in a particular asset like Union Pacific for nine years. That's just the nine years is just the periodicity. It's still a trade. You know, investing is long term and trading is short term. Everything's a trade. This for that. Buy it here with money, sell it there for, you know, cash. You know, there's an exchange of value. It's all a trade. You're trading one thing for another. I do believe, yes, according to the Vulgate and the colloquial. You know, understanding investing is supposed to be longer term and trading is supposed to be shorter term. But to me, it's all a trade. I don't believe there's a such thing as passive investing. I think there's just laziness or trying to approach things actively. Periodicity is simply periodicity. Eventually, skill has to rise to the top. And I do believe at the last turn of the card... Laziness is eventually punished. Hey, if a person wants a 20-year periodicity, you know, for a particular asset to the right principles, who is anybody to argue with them on that? Great, fine, wonderful. As long as it's a buy and review and manage and evaluate and make another decision for risk mitigation but continue to hold, hey, fine, wonderful. It's just a periodicity, that's all. Buy, hold, and forget, you're asking for trouble. And I should say, I, I'm talking, see, that. Yeah. <laughs> that's the thing when you do these things and push them out in social media. You have to make all these caveat statements because there's so many different groups out there, especially in finance. 
There are those that will not trade or invest and yet invest their money. You know, they go out and get an asset manager. Again, more power to them. I'm not speaking to that. I'm speaking to people that are self-directed. Okay, so when I say I don't think there is any such thing as passive investing, that periodicity is simply periodicity, I'm speaking to people that are, are self-directed in one form or another. I don't care if they're the individual investor at home with an account. I don't care, like, you know, my wife's grandfather or others. I don't care if it's, you know, somebody that's managing a single-family office, multi-family office, Asset manager, I don't care what it is. Anybody that's self-directed, there is no such thing as passive. There's just periodicity and a trade for a trade or lazy. Now, those people that want to go out and use an asset manager, that's a whole other thing, right? And that's that's not really who I really speak to when I put together a podcast or, a, you know, or uh, anything else in the social media sphere. I'm more in the asset manager. I, you know, these are the Those are the folks I'm talking to is folks that are asset managers or looking to become asset managers or individual self-directed traders, right? I'm not speaking to those folks that are like, well, screw you all. (laughs) I ain't got time for this, nor do I want to do it. I'm going to hand my money over to an asset manager uh, that I trust or has a track record or or whatever. that's, That's a whole other thing, right? I'm not addressing that. Okay. So. I wanted that out there, right? So we've we've talked about up to this point, sort of remembering and keeping in mind that if we're going to use a poker analogy, there's many people sitting at this table. You have to, you, you have to, and I think it's wise to consider all the information out there. Okay, what the other person at the poker table may believe and think. You may not hold that belief, but you should think. You should listen. You should always keep your ears open. And listen to what other asset managers, other hedge fund managers, other pensions, others may be thinking about valuations. Because it's what they think, and they're going to place their chips in the table of the market. And that will have an effect. So it's at least, I believe, wise to keep your ears open. At the moment, myself, just to specify my thoughts for repetition's sake, I do believe that overall valuations are stretched at the moment. But there you can still find individual plays and things to do to keep yourself safe in this environment. Now, I want to finish covering a few aspects of... of... uh, data that I believe has a bearing on valuations and the market at the moment. This is a part that, like, in the past, ones have enjoyed hearing my thoughts for the aforementioned reasons, right? They just want to know what I think. They may not do what I think. As a matter of fact, as we often say, this is just to look over our shoulder as to our thoughts, not yours. And that, that phraseology is very specific. It's not just a byline. It's for a very specific reason. They are our thoughts, not yours. So, in in the whole spirit of everything we've been talking about, to go over our thoughts on the market. There are a number of aspects I see, I think, have a bearing on valuations and the market. Let's talk about a few of those. I think there's, I want to sort of split this up into a few categories. Growth factors and euphoria. 
growth factors and euphoria. I want to talk about inflation as another sort of category. Okay, and then I'm going to review a bit by going over quantifiable metrics and lagging periodicities. So let's take that first one, growth factors and euphoria. That's something you always have to keep your mind out for and your mind on. Remember, we're, we're, we're going to be talking about growth factors and euphoria here. And you, you have to keep your mind on the fact that there are, even when you hate the environment, and I'm going to talk about this more, even when you hate the environment, you have to understand the growth factors. Even if, even if deep in your core, you're like me, and it's like, man, I'd love to see those, those passive guys punished and us to just have another gut-wrenching 2001 to 2004. I'd love to see that. <laughs> even if you have that, you still have to, and I, again, I will speak more to this in just a moment, you have to keep your eye on growth factors in a calm, detached, unemotional way where you're not tilting. So when you look at growth factors and euphoria, again, I'm going to dispense with something I see as a, as a common objection. How can anybody possibly value the market with all of these Federal Reserve distortions? How can anybody look at any metric and say, you can, you can value the market and there's all these things the Federal Reserve's been doing? Or are there all of these other uh, actions, these fiscal policy actions that have taken place? How can anybody properly value the market, whatever their approach and metric is? I'm going to let you in on a very brutal truth. I agree. There's a lot of distortions. Distortions by, from actions of the Federal Reserve, distortions by actions of fiscal policy. We have always had those distortions. If you're waiting for a time period for there not to be distortions, you might as well be waiting to the end of your life because you are never going to see that time. It's just a factor in play and you have to accept it. A lot of them I don't like either. I've specified many of my thoughts in the past over that, both in articles in GTC here and earlier. But you're always going to have those distortions. You can't just sit back and say, well, I'll just wait until there won't be any. Do you honestly believe there's going to be a time where the Federal Reserve and fiscal policymakers won't be stepping in to, to do these sort of things? That's never going to happen. You just have to proceed forward. We have always had these distortions in one form or another. Matter of fact, and I mean decades, if, if you will literally be waiting to the end of your life, you know, it's not just a recent phenomenon. Ones think about Operation Twist, right? We had Operation Twist. What was that, 2011 or 2015 or something like that? I forget the exact year. No, let's go back to Operation Twist back in 1961. That was back in 1961 that the Fed used uh, open market operations to um, basically perform what was later, you know, referred to as Operation Twist. And, oh my goodness, the history goes back even further as far as fiscal policy. Fiscal policy, you know, corporate taxes, income taxes, the WPA, 
you know, the 1930s, the 1920s. What, what time period do you want to pick? The Employment Act of 1946. What about when uh, President Bush sent checks to every household at a certain level? I forget what it was. What was it, $600 or something like that back at the turn of the 21st century? It's not just a recent phenomenon. It's happened before. You know, that's fiscal policy. You know, we can jump back to, yes, what ones know of in recent uh, history of like QE1, QE2, you know, ZERP, um, the second Operation Twist, uh, you know, everything that we've had up to date. But this is not a recent phenomenon. This has always gone on. So I would simply say you want to wait 60 years for something that I don't believe will ever happen? What, that they're not going to step in and do these things? Just like short-term traders know, hey, you just got to come up with something where you work with it. It's the same when you deal with valuations or, or when you're talking about the stock market as a whole, whether it be the Wilshire or if you're looking at a particular specialized index or basket of stocks that's weighted and rebalanced in certain ways. You just have to know that's part of the game. That's the rake. Okay, so, I mean, that's all I know to tell you. You just got to move forward with that information in hand. Okay, now let's go back to growth factors and euphoria, this category I wanted to discuss. Even, Even when you don't agree with it, even when you don't like it, there are generally factors in play in the United States economy that are growth factors you have to consider. Let me bring the subject of our last podcast. What was the subject of our last podcast? Artificial intelligence, right? That is a growth factor. And we've generally always had these growth factors, and you always, or at least I have, always been on the lookout for what is the next big one. And we've generally always had those. Go back to the freeway system, right? Generals coming back from World War II, seeing what the Germans had built and how effective it was. The freeway system isn't just so we can get to point A to point B quickly, although it is. uh, It does serve that function. It serves a massive function in an economy. Transportation and the ease of transportation. The freeway system is just a massive boon to the United States economy because of the service that it provides to that economy. Back when the, you know, the freeways were built, it's sort of funny we were my wife and I are avid readers and we were reading um, somewhat about the history of the area where we live in. A lot of historic events happened around us. And it used to be before the advent of there's like okay, there's there's the metro area of the city and then we live sort of off to the side of that, right, as many do <laughs> and will. Um, there's sort of an, it's a nice area. And then, so we live off to the side of the metro area, all made possible by the freeway system to live off by the side of the area and not needing to live in the city. And then I would say about 15 to 20 minutes north of us, there's a whole other city. A lot of historic events happen there. Well, we were, we were doing some reading 
uh, on the history of this area. And ones we're talking about, when they used to go to the city that's just north of us, 15 minutes, right? So there's a whole other city north of us, 15 to 20 minutes. And they used to come south and then go east to the main metro area of our city. Used to take them two and a half hours. We were just floored. This is all side two-lane roads and stop signs and, you know, the dirt road on this portion. We're not talking, we're talking right before the advent of the freeway system. Two hours. You can now do that in probably 16 minutes with the freeways. Massive boon to the, to the economy. And that it's kept in good repair. Again, massive boon to the economy. The ease of transportation. Space program's another one, right? Space program. A lot of folks don't understand the technology that came out of the space program. Technology that basically allows for bypass surgeries for the technology that's in your cell phone. The investment that went into space exploration, they had to engineer problems, right? It's at, like if you ever look into the the uh, engineering of the SR-71 Blackbird, that is a fascinating story. Fascinating story. They knew what they wanted it to do. They didn't have the engineering capabilities. So they just kept teaching themselves new techniques until they eventually got to what they wanted to have. It's the same with the space program. It's ironic that ones were complaining back in the 1970s about the expense of the space program, right? Oh my goodness, so much money is going into this. What are we going to the moon for anyways? I have heard estimates, and there are other estimates that you can go out there and look for yourself, that all of the technology that we all benefit from on a day-to-day basis that you can find in your cell phone, to hospitals, to you know, the health care that keeps you alive, to things in your vehicle, I have heard that the return on investment in the space program was something like eight to one. You invest one dollar, you got eight dollars out of it when you consider all of the technology that came out of the space program. Massive, massive boon to the entire economy. Which also led, by the way, to another massive boon to the economy. I think it's I think the investment that went in the space program in the nineteen sixties and nineteen seventies far beyond eight dollars to one in terms of a return on your money. Because the space program, in some ways, begat not, not the personal computing necessarily phase, because that had already been ongoing, but the acceleration into personal computing and cloud computing. So these are growth factors, right? And I've had my eye on the next growth factor, artificial intelligence. Will artificial intelligence be the, I don't know the answer to that question. I'm asking it as a question. Is this something that we are going to have as a growth phase? Artificial intelligence. Will that be sort of like the new freeway system, right? That's what I'm always on the lookout for. Or the combination of a couple of factors, the new commercialization of uh, space exploration, 
and the advances being made there for the first time in however many years with artificial intelligence? Does that lead a whole new growth phase? And I cannot stress this enough, such that you don't tilt when things don't go your way and something goes wrong. You have to think about what could be a growth phase like that, like a freeway system, like the space program of the 1960s and 70s, like personal computing and and the cloud. Whole paradigms that lead an economy forward. And here's the thing about that. Let's further subdivide that into something you may not want to hear about, but it is a fact of markets. You have to go through the really nutty phase of euphoria that gets really, really stupid. Like, I'm talking like from when all of the money from, you know, 401ks is an interesting, um, 401ks are a very interesting story. We've had 401ks forever. And when I say forever, I don't mean back to the 1990s. I mean far before that. Had an interesting conversation with our lawyer. Uh, We have a lawyer at GTC Traders. And I had a very fascinating conversation with him on the history of 401ks. And the 401ks were actually originally developed as sort of a executive corporate mechanism that executives used. Until someone came along, and, and I'm paraphrasing my conversation with, with our lawyer. I'm sure our attorney could, could be much more specific and much more accurate. But later on in the 1990s, someone came along and said, hey, what if we just opened up these 401k things to everyone? And then, and from payroll, and then the money began to pour in. At the same time, personal computing and tech and the internet, as we talked about in our last podcast, came about and then was beginning to mature. You know, the internet was another growth factor, right? One of these massive, massive growth factors. So you had, while the internet is maturing, 401k money from payrolls for the first time in the history of 401ks being poured into the markets, right? So you can have a confluence of factors like that begin to occur. And that, that is when things get really nutty. Now, here's the thing about euphoria. If we have some confluence of factors like this, does it sound like I'm making a sort of the bull's case? You know, a bull case? Yeah, actually I am. Because as we've said before, repetition for emphasis, you have to consider the bull case. You know, the bullish case. Even if you don't agree with it. Now here's the thing when something like that happens. That euphoria can go on and on and on. And you think things are nutty now? I was trading in the 1990s. Then things can get really crazy. And valuations become stretched for years on end. I remember in 1995 looking at a going back a while, you know, to earlier what we were discussing earlier in this podcast to a chart of the stock market and thinking to myself, "My god, that's awful high. I don't want to get involved in that." Oops. <laughs> 5 more years of gains. My point being is you can have that euphoria from a growth factor that goes that goes absolutely nutty. Just goes crazy. 
And here's the point. You can't sit on the sidelines for five years. You better have a way of dealing with that. Just like we said earlier, you can't just sit around saying, well, I'm going to wait for these distortions to work themselves out. Now nah, you have to consider it part of the cost of doing the game and sitting down to the table. Those distortions are always going to be with us in one form or another. You just have to accept it as a cost of play. And it's the same thing here. You have to accept. You must if we're talking about equities and valuations, that you are going to have those sort of euphoria situations. And if you desire any sort of profitability out of equities, you better have a way of dealing with that. I do. We do. Right? You may hate it and not like it, but you better have a model for dealing with it. Those are sort of factors out there that are on my mind, right? Maybe the bull case, if you want to say that, when we consider, you know, general growth factors, euphoria, is there a bullish case? I don't like it, but might there be one? Yeah. I have to accept the reality if I really actually do this, <laughs> right? And not one of these furus out there that we'll have more to say on in the future that pretends to play in the markets. When you sit down and you really have to do that, you have to accept it as just reality. All right. Enough of the bull case and growth factors that could come into play and then the euphoria that can take on top of that. Let's talk about the fun stuff. <laughs> Let's talk about some of my thoughts as to inflation, to problems, to the bear case, to current real problems that exist. First of all, as I've somewhat intoned earlier when we're going to talk about the bear case or um, problems or current real problems and inflation, you have to understand that there's always problems. Even, even in the 1990s when things were going higher and higher and higher and higher and higher and higher and higher, and I'm coming into trading and I'm looking at it and going, wow, that stock market seems high. And we still had another five to six years to go. Uh, there's always problems. Always. Just accept it. Okay? I heard somebody say years ago, and I really enjoyed it. I can't remember who the asset manager was that I heard say this. But he was talking about, like, how, how do you approach uh, bad fundamentals in the market, underlying bad fundamentals? And he said, because there's always bad un underlying fundamentals in the market, always. Just accept it. And I thought that's said beautifully. But you still also have to keep your eye on them. Because if you're bullish, right, things go bad. You, you better know what went bad. So... We're going we're gonna to switch to that second category. Remember, we've got a few categories here. We went through uh, the first category of growth factors and euphoria and the bull case. Now let's move on to the, the second category that I wanted to discuss. Talk about my thoughts on inflation, right, when we're talking about inflation and current real problems. As I said, I'm waiting for the July print. Now remember, if you're newer... We didn't, even though CPI and core and all of that was just released here in July, that's not the July print, that's the June print. So as I've already said in articles at GTC Traders, I'm waiting for the July numbers to be released. I approach my, my macro view, my sort of my global you know, macroeconomic views, 
and I always have in a rather Bayesian manner, Bayesian probability statistics, and they're, which means that I generally develop a, an overall view of the environment we're in and try to behave according to that. But if you know anything about Bayesian probability statistics, there's something we have called data splines, and you have to take in a lot of data right before you just take off in a new direction like some newbie trader that's literally putting the wind to his sails like every three days he turns around and he thinks something different now i need to gather a lot of data to sort of see where what i think you have to sort of gather a lot of data before a spline is created and now you have a spline but before before you change your overall view i'm trying to think of a way to put this in just general everyday speech <laughs> before you actually um, construct a different view you have to take in a lot of data i can give you a preview of the direction i'm leaning as far as the next bayesian probability <laughs> spline when it comes to my view on macroeconomics we had the recent inflation print for June that came in cooler than we thought. Okay, so let's, let's talk a little bit here about the direction I'm leaning for, what would we call it, posterior distributions? And I'm trying to think of a way to just put this in just everyday speech when it comes to my thoughts on inflation. <laughs> you know, I'm sitting here trying to think of a way, right? Because I think the last thing that anybody wants to hear when they tune in uh, to long-form podcasts is me talk about the arguments that go on between polyharmonic splines and a uh, singular Bayesian data spline. And <laughs> why I think poly... I don't think folks want to really hear about that. Uh, so... It, it, which it's funny because I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, you know, I was actually talking with one of my business partners once and we were talking about how various data plots were uh, functioned together into one harmonious whole. And he said, actually, it's done through something called polyharmonic data splines. I know you probably don't know what that is, but uh, and I was like, actually, I do. <laughs> and we all had a laugh. Right. And at the same time, I'm laughing. I'm thinking nobody else is going to get like this humor or where we're at or like nobody wants to tune in to listen to me talk about that right so i'm trying to think of a way i'm trying to think of a way to put this well i know how i'll do it i'll talk tell you what i think the fed is concerned about everybody loves to criticize the fed that's an easy trade socially to get in on it's a crowded trade to get in on Trust you, I've talked about in articles at GTC Traders of how much actions of the Fed I thought were wrong, were a mistake. Oh, gee, look at that. I was right uh, and right again and right again. Uh, but when I thought, but, but that's an easy trade. Everybody hates the Fed. It's easy to beat up on the person that's generally been wrong about a lot of things recently. That's the easy trade, and I would warn you against it. You know, again, it's 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 viewing all of these factors in a calm, detached way. I, I see too many people want to beat up on the Fed. And when I look at the overall argument that they're making, they're just 
they're just jumping on the pile to beat up on the Fed. And that's all they're doing. Rather than making a legitimate case. So that's, that's just a side tangent there. But I would warn you against beating up on the Fed too much. Criticize their actions when it's warranted and when it's not. You, you gotta you don't build a bias within yourself in that direction. Okay, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Here's what I think the Fed is concerned about, and I think it's an intelligent concern because everybody, when you read, especially there's a lot of people, and you definitely see them in Finchwit that have an how do I put this? A news anchor job, and there's always been a couple of categories of folks that I have no respect for as far as their thoughts on markets is anchors who try to speak to markets. You're an anchor. You present news. You don't know. If, if you knew how to be an asset manager, you'd be an asset manager. There's one guy out there that just literally just, just hearing his voice, I just get furious, just Talk about diarrhea of the mouth. He just won't shut up and stop talking. But he's an anchor. And he likes to, let's consult with him. And he just likes to blah, 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 blah. And just make himself sound so intelligent. And it's like, really? Where's your asset management firm? Who? What single family office or multifamily office uh, funds are you directing? Oh, that's right, none. So, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I have these, I have these tangents from time to time. <laughs> uh what movie was that when the one person looked at the other one? It's like, are you done? <laughs> are you going to have these little fits of yours? <laughs> well, sometimes I do have those little fits of mine. But you see all of these financial news anchors sort of jumping on the bandwagon because of their own biases, and they don't understand the risk factors in play and the bearish case, which I'm going to outline here. You, you see them, ah, it's all over. Inflation's over. The Fed won. See, ha, ha. We told all you guys. Ah, ha, 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 ha. Well, I think the Fed themselves have a bigger concern. And I think the, the concern of the Fed at the moment, because everybody loves to refer to all oh, that bad inflation of the 1970s. Well, if you're going to say that, do you know the way that played out? Specifically? Oh, yeah, there were some problems with uh, OPEC and, you know, and they all speak in generalities. No, I'm speaking of the metrics of the way inflation progressed in the 19 uh in the 1970s and if you're going to say or criticize the fed i think you better really know your history and i think that if they are smart about it they're gonna ignore what everybody else is saying and I think the Fed, the concern of the Fed is that we have a repeat of the 1970s. And I'm not referring to the fact that inflation was high. I know my history. See, right about the time the Duke here is just, a, a, you know, fumbling about and pooping himself, inflation was around 2%. And it took off. And it took off. And it took off. And it took off like mad. And it got as high as far as the way they were counting the models they were not trying to get they weren't trying to smooth the model at the time there's a there's a whole discussion there about why they've had to change the model to smooth out irregularities so they don't get trapped in static on policy decisions but it got up to about 12 13 percent right around 1975 so when i say inflation took off took off and took off it really took off and it got as high as 12 percent in 1975 bad 
Well, in comes the Fed with their actions, and they drove inflation all the way down to like the high fours, so like 4.5%. What was that? Beginning of 1977, I believe? That 1977 specifically, if they're smart about it, is what the Fed is concerned about. Because what happened in 1970? Ah, see, yay, we won! Like all those stupid news anchors or people that pretend to be somebody that you can consult that is not an asset manager of any note whatsoever, but likes to... <laughs> with her little beaker voice and won't shut up and stop talking. Have diarrhea... Oh, there I go again. <laughs> a little bit of a tirade. Are you done with these little fits of yours? Anyways... Uh, they like to, ah, see, ha, huh, the, Fed, the Fed won. Well, in 1977, when they drove it down to 4.9%, that's when inflation really came in. And that's when it began to get really nuts. See, they drove inflation down from like 12% to the high fours from 1975 to 1977. If the Fed is smart about it, what they're concerned about is, yes, we did that, but what we really don't want to see is a 1977 to 1980 where it ramps back up and then it gets really nuts. This tug of war, that's, that is, you can drive inflation down to 3.8%. Great, wonderful. Who cares if it doesn't stay there? So, as far as a bear case, that's something I have my eye on. How does the Fed approach rate hikes with that in mind? I urge you, go back to FRED data. Go back to inflation and look at it yourself from like 1970 to 1980. Do some homework. I can't do it all for you, nor should I. <laughs> if I'm going to specify my thoughts on here and take my time out. What they're concerned about is a 1973 what they're concerned about is a 1977 and just going back and forth in this tug of war. Because if that happens, then the actions that they must take are they have to intentionally force the economy into a hard, hard, hard recession. A painful one if it's going to get fixed. So as I look forward, that's, that's a concern of mine with inflation. That's the way I'm leaning. I'm pretty much already there. I've got enough data, but I do have to see, in order to complete the model, I do have to see the July print for inflation. Now, if the Fed's smart and has a backbone and will, they're not going to make the mistake they made in 1976. They're going to keep their foot on the pedal. And why shouldn't they? I mean, we haven't really seen the problems with employment that we had from 1973 to 1975. So if they've got a backbone and a will, the way I'm thinking, just my thoughts, not yours. You're just looking over a sho my shoulder into my head and on my piece of paper and what I'm writing. Since we have not had this great run-up in unemployment, they shouldn't take their foot off the pedal. I agree. I think what they've done is intelligent at this point. They paused rates, but what they've said is we're not stopping in our in in raising the rate. We're pausing how aggressive we are with those rate hikes because they have not seen the rise in unemployment 
which is what you should generally see when they've done what they've done, but we haven't gotten that, that should give them more encouragement not to go through another 1977. Yeah, to continue with some more 25 basis rate hikes. Not give in to the dumb peanut gallery crowd that thinks, ah, it's all over, see, we got to back down, and that's just the end of the story. If they knew anything about history, they would know 1977 teaches you that's not the end of the story. So if I see them say, now we're thinking about another rate hike, and using language that way, language is a tool that they have, maybe we're going to do another one at 25 and get the ready for for the market, you know, of the market to do it and actually do it. And then pause and evaluate, taking data in a rather Bayesian manner. Uh, that For them to start talking about rate, there's two things that I have a concern for. And these are ideas I've seen floated. First of all, the idea that they're going to start cutting the rate is stupid at best. The idea that they're going to get back to rate decreases is stupid at best that's a very polite diplomatic word for it the concern now is we don't have a repeat of 1977 the second thing i'd say is i've seen and this would be so that would be inflationary the other problem i would see is if they any thought there's been this thought floated about and one of the partners actually showed me this and i was like that is that's dumb to a whole new level of maybe we should move the goalpost and it won't be 2% inflation overall. Maybe we should move it to like 35 or 4% and consider that acceptable. And now we've moved the goalpost to 4% and then that's acceptable and see, yay, we won and we're going to score a touchdown and it's all over. Again, that concept, and if they go that direction, I would see as stupid at best. So I don't want to see anything like that. What I would like to see as an investor, I'm not speaking politically. See, they're fighting a lot of political headwinds right now because anybody in politics can't think of the future and the way things play out. They're very reactionary, you know, and oh, no, this will make me look bad. That's why the Fed is supposed to be politically independent. So what I'm talking about and politically neutral, what I'm talking about is what I would like to see the Fed do. A pause and maybe another 25 basis point rate hike, and then we look at we look at data and maybe another one. If you know, if unemployment doesn't take off, I would view as very intelligent. I would view that as a good move if they have the backbone. This is just my thoughts. I don't think they do. I don't think they have that sort of sterner stuff. But again, that's just my thoughts, not yours, right? And my concerns for inflation moving forward. Yes, they have they have gotten a handle on it. Hope we don't have another 1977. Just saying. So, and I'm still waiting for July. There's a, there's another aspect of inflation I'd like to talk about here. Um, geopolitical movements and uh, population migrations. Uh, and this is basically specifically referring to the United States and problems that the United States faces and will continue to face. A little bit of a story time with the Duke. Uh, I am basically a JD. I'm not speaking about politics here. I'm just speaking about life experiences. JD from uh, Hillbilly Elegy. 
I originally hail from Franklin County, Virginia. My family does. Both sides going way, way back, like nearly 300 years. Um, the East Lynn area of West Virginia and Lick Creek, that whole area. That's where my family hails from. Now, I say I am a JD because back in the 50s and 60s, work was nil and drying up, unless you wanted to go work in the coal mines and that whole problem. And so for work, my family eventually moved up north where the jobs were. And that's what I mean by hillbilly elegy. I have a foot sort of in both worlds. I look very much like JD. I feel more at home around relatives that are from Kentucky, Virginia, and West Virginia. That's my home. I currently live in the South because I moved my family back to the South. So, and I, that's, that's going to be what my point is here. My point is internal population migrations. So for 30 years, we actually, some may argue longer than thir- three decades, we would see ones do that hillbilly elegy migration from the south to up to the north where work is. We have seen that reverse. We've seen folks, and especially folks like myself, that feel more at home because that's where all of our families from. That's where we spent our youth was down south. You have seen people begin to move back to southern states. You've seen a population migration because for whatever reasons, and I don't want to get into politics here at all, but because I will put it this way, because, because at a certain point you have to say something. Because of policies they don't like and they don't see it getting any better, they've decided to move their family to a place where they think is sane. And maybe both sides are fine with that. Again, I'm not trying to comment for or against. I'm just saying this is a reality that has occurred. My politics are XYZ and you're saying this. No, I'm not. I'm saying objectively, not subjectively, objectively look at the facts. People are moving to areas based on policies within the United States. I don't like these policies, and therefore I'm leaving XYZ state and I'm moving to California. Or I'm, I don't like XYZ policy, and so I'm moving to New York. I've heard a couple of those cases. Far more often, however, uh, especially in our area, we're seeing population increases. This is a very well-to-do area I live in, and we're seeing population increases because people just don't like the policies, and so we're seeing, I think, a reverse. So, So what you saw there, what I'm trying to say is what you saw there for 40 years or something like that is people move from southern states to northern states for jobs or to other areas, maybe not the north. My family moved from, you know, I had family in Kentucky and Virginia and West Virginia. Core of my family's from West Virginia. All moved north up to the Detroit area. And now you're seeing the reverse of that. It's been wrong. Now, I, I'm, I moved my family out of there because I've just always felt more at home in the south. And literally, I asked my wife from the day we got married in our 20s, you know, in our younger 20s, like, can we please move down south? And I finally convinced her. 
<laughs> and so I finally, she she wasn't moving to West Virginia. Actually, I, I'm not sure if I'd, I, I'm not, I think if I lived in West Virginia, I might move out of it. Uh, we moved to a different area in the South. One, we're very, very happy with the move. She's exceedingly happy with the move. She looked at me one day and she said, thank you so much for moving us here. I was like, finally, after like 24 years or something like that. <laughs> But anyways, my, my point being is, so we moved some time ago, and then 2020 hit, and then we really began to see the massive migrations that we all know are just an objective part of reality. Everybody knows it. Everybody's moving to Texas, Florida, South Carolina, I know, has seen a huge influx, Tennessee, you know, these are the sort of states that are seen, like Nashville area, are seeing just massive population explosions and in our area as well. Just, we have a housing problem. We have a housing shortage. There's just not enough homes. People were buying homes sight unseen. Without seeing the house, seeing something on the internet, I'll take it. I want out of here. Now, everyone blames that on 2020. Again, what I'm about to say is not political. It's just an objective fact and reality. My family moved from West Virginia to the Detroit area. We lived there for decades. I know the Detroit area exceptionally well. Detroit began a Detroit at one time was one of the wealthiest cities on this planet. Easily. That's where all the money was. You may not believe me, but you can look that up. Objectively, Detroit was one of the wealthiest cities on this planet. And everybody moved there for decades, and there was just this constant, constant, constant move to the Detroit area for work. People wanted jobs. They wanted a steady job. Detroit fed my family, put food on the table for many years. Then jobs began to leave Detroit, and people began to leave Detroit. And I'm talking not about the Detroit metro area. I'm talking about the city of Detroit was one of the wealthiest cities on this planet. They began a series of policies, and people began to move. And people began to move, and people began to move. And eventually Detroit became what it is known as today. Not a place you would necessarily want to live. There's a very strong pride in being from the D. I know the D very well, right? As I said, there's a city in Michigan called Taylor. Taylor, Michigan. You can look it up. It is also colloquial known somewhat in the vernacular, in the Vulgate, as Taylor Tucky. Because so many people from the South moved there. Now, eventually, they've originally moved to the city of Detroit, and then once Detroit began this certain policies, we'll just put it that way, people moved out to the suburbs. They moved to Taylor. Taylor got to be known as Taylor Tucky. There were so many people from Kentucky there, right? My family's from West Virginia, and the, you know, so there was just there's just so many Southerners in that area, but they moved away from Detroit. And Detroit, you would think, and there was always this argument, and this is something I really want to say. There was always this argument. Well, Detroit's one of the wealthiest cities on the planet. Detroit's where all the money's at. 
You know, you may not like the policies, but and everybody kept on saying there's no way they'll keep being this stupid. There's no way they will continue down this path that is impoverishing Detroit. Detroit was a great, wonderful city. There's no way they'll com continue to complain and whine and do things so stupidly. They'll, they'll turn around. They never did. And eventually, the auto industry left because of a number of factors and got just disseminated around the world, and everything that made Detroit, made Detroit great was gone. And now there's not the work there anymore. I say all of the proceeding to say this. I've seen interviews of many people fleeing and leaving California and leaving very other states that they are not happy with. I'm getting out of there. I know folks in our area who've moved here from Illinois. And there's always the thought, there's two thoughts. One thought I've actually heard various politicians say is, we're one of the wealthiest states there are. Detroit said the same thing. So I'm not speaking to the politics. What I'm speaking to is it takes decades and decades and decades. And even as a state is impoverishing itself, even as a city is impoverishing itself, even as it's going from one of the wealthiest cities on this planet to a crime-ridden murder capital of the world, they will try to hold on to their glory past and act as if what the, the lunacy that they're doing at any given moment is not going to eventually cause them to turn into what I refer to as the Detroit scenario. It's an economic problem. I've, I've sort of labeled the whole paradigm the Detroit scenario. If you're expecting the policies to change and get more sane, I would say look at the history of Detroit. They generally do not become sane. They double down. So if you're waiting to move for it, it's like, oh, things will go back. Things are getting so bad that very obviously this can't continue. My family watched the people of Detroit say that for 40 years until Detroit became what it been. And now Detroit's making a rebound. And again, I'm sort of a child of two worlds. I consider my home in the South. I consider my home Virginia and West Virginia. But I do have a foot in the D. You know, I'm, I, you know, 89X and, <laughs> and, you know, going to the shelter and St. Andrew's Hall. Uh, trust me, I know all of it, man. I, I, I know southeastern Detroit like I know few places on this planet, even though my home is the south. It's always been the south. It's where my family's from. You know, I literally at one point we did live in Taylor. No joke. <laughs> if you're waiting for the policies to become more sane, I think you have a long wait on your hands. Look to the Detroit scenario. So what I'm saying here, I say that to say, make this other point. My other point is objectively, just my belief from the polynomials that I've sort of gathered to date <laughs> to create a spline, uh, I think the population migration you saw for decades from the south to the north, I think it's going to I think it has reversed and I don't think it's going to stop. 
I think this is the new paradigm. I think we are currently in a world where people move from all these other states to the south. Now, that's caused an inflation problem here. When we first moved here, right, how to put this? Uh, if there was a very fine home in Detroit, and Detroit has nice, or the metro area, I'll put it this way, the metro area, Gross Point Farms and, you know, uh, Auburn Hills and um, other nice areas. Even Downriver has some very, very nice areas where executives of the various companies worked or lived, I should say. You could get, uh, how do I want to put this? I'm trying to think of speak that anybody in the United States will understand. Um, let, let's look at a McMansion, a nice McMansion, right? You know what a McMansion is. Generally, they would go for what? Maybe two hundred fifty to $350,000, right? That's before the current countrywide inflation problem and in, in housing, uh, housing going up. Well, that same, now let's go from a McMansion to a nice home. Forget the McMansions. Let's go a step up. In Detroit, you could get one for maybe $450,000, right? $450,000, $475,000. You could get a very nice home that was a step up from a McMansion. So that ought to tell you the kind of home I'm talking about. When we came down to where we live now, very affluent area, uh, that same $500,000 home, you could buy here for like two hundred and fifty grand. We were blown away how cheap it was down here. How affluent, how nice, how clean, low crime, uh, sensible policies that you could live your life without being nannied to death, and how cheap. Matter of fact, when I moved my car insurance, I, you know, I'd like to keep my car insurance and all my liabilities to the nines, right? That's, that's a whole other conversation. But my car insurance, in the, anybody in Michigan knows what I'm talking about. It's so, it was so out of hand, it was ridiculous. When we gave them our new address, they said, well, from what you've paid thus far in your, in your term here in Michigan, and you're moving there for your next term, we, you owe nothing, and we're refunding you $58, and that'll pay you through your next term to where you're moving. I mean, just all of the prices were lower. Well, then, so we moved before 2020 is what I'm saying. Then 2020 came about, and then the population and the housing and everybody coming here and buying houses sight unseen. So that same nice home that is a step up from a McMansion that you could get for 275000 you know, nice home, a nice, nice home. I'm not talking a McMansion. I'm talking a step up from that. And you could buy it here for 275000 Good luck. You'd be paying 750000 to $1.1 million now for that same home in the same area. I'm not just giving you this as an anecdote of our area. I'm saying that's the result of population migrations. You get localized inflation. And localized deflation of the, of the you know, where you can't sell and you keep on having to lower the price in areas where people are fleeing. Also known as the Detroit scenario that I was just talking about. People going, yeah, I got to get out of here. I got to sell this place and get out of here. Well, you see deflationary prices. So you see this tug of war between inflationary prices and deflationary prices when you get these sort of population migrations. I don't think it's going to stop. 
I don't think we're going to see it just all settle. I, I think the new norm is moving to these states, moving to Texas, moving to Florida, you know, moving to Nashville. I think that's going to be the norm. Like it was for 30 years moving up north, reverse it. We're now in that paradigm, and I don't think it's stopping. So that's going to cause micro-inflationary, you know, shifts and pulls. And I think you have to adjust for that. Now, on the wider scope of things, I think that my thoughts, not yours, people just for some reason have found, you know, wanted to listen to my thoughts in the past. I think that's going on worldwide. For 30 years, we lived in a world with opening borders and ease of travel. You know, I'm a child of the Cold War, right? I grew up when you had the drills of what happens when if a nuclear attack is coming. <laughs> in, our, in our school, we had a bunker that actually you went into this small reinforced area underneath the school swimming pool, right? And uh, that was the fallout area, and you went under there. So, you know, and it was not easy. It was easy to fly, but uh, their passports and visas and all of that could be a a bit of a headache. Well, now it's even more so. We we lived in a world, what I'm trying to say, and, and as I was just describing the population migrations that are going on in the United States, and how I think we now have a permanent move from northern states and, and other states to the south, to Florida, to Texas, places like that. Uh, I, I think worldwide you are seeing borders close down, and I think you're going to see the expense of travel continue to rise. Now, those are all my thoughts. Wonderful, very fascinating, Duke. It's wonderful that you've gone through your thoughts here. What does that have to do with markets? Companies that are not already vertically integrated, be careful. That's a bear case. What do we mean when we say vertically integrated? Well, back when you made cars, let's just start. I'll just give you a story here, right? Uh, In Detroit, when you made a car back in, you know, uh, Henry Ford's time and even somewhat after, they said, let's do everything here. Let's get the steel made here. Let's get the battery made here. Let's get the hand crank here made here. Let's get the tires made here. Let's get the chassis made here. And then we'll put the whole thing together here. That's vertically integrated. You're taking care of all of the processes of manufacturing in-house. Let's put it that way, in-house or locally, right? That's vertically integrated. I know years ago I used to own a lot of Johnson Controls. I know they were very interested in being a vertically integrated company. Uh well, we had 30 years where it's very loose borders, export everything, right? Everybody, you know, just every, all these other countries can make it, you know, export the jobs there, and you can get, you can get things made more cheaply. Uh, that's coming to an end, I think. So as far as impact to markets of everything I've talked about with these, with these migration, popula- you know, migration um, moves in the United States and the inflationary, deflationary tug of, pull, tug of war you're going to see there, I think you can transpose that to the entire world. And what it means is companies that are not vertically integrated well or heavily dependent on outside sources are going to have a real problem and a real struggle. Again, the bear case. Right? 
and don't rely on things continuing to normal. Again, again, I, I saw this certain population, this certain politicians say, you, you know, when asked directly, everybody is fleeing you. Everybody is like, tr like they can't get away from this area fast enough. You've never seen a population leave this fast. The reply was, yeah, well, we're one of the, the best GDP, um, you know, per, we're one of the best uh, economies in the world. So, so let them leave. Let them leave. Well, again, Detroit used to say the same thing, and look how it ended up. As everybody was heading out the door, you know, it's that meme where you see the dog sitting at the table saying, everything's fine, nothing's wrong here, as the rest of the room is on fire. Yeah. Uh, don't, don't, <laughs> don't get sucked into that. Everything's not fine. Look to the Detroit scenario. And don't get sucked into normalcy bias. If you're going to own equities, I, I think it's good to at least consider as a factor how, how well they're vertically integrated. That's what I'm looking for. Ones that have... Something I've kept an eye on, too, is, uh, and this is before we saw the rate hikes, I saw several companies, Kroger's one of them, I looked and examined their debt structure, and Kroger handled it very well, uh, because I had figured, uh, ones who know me personally and otherwise, and have read some things I put in rather personal venues, uh, knew that like in February of 2021, I was like, inflation is not transitory. It's going to get bad, really, really bad. Like worse than anybody that is, has ever, is an adult now has ever seen. And it's going to cause a real spike in interest rates. It's a thesis we've been playing. Uh, you know, bond prices are going to, or, or no short-term interest rates, uh, notes, bonds, you know, prices are going to fall and rates are going to increase. Uh, I noticed that several come. I was not alone. I'm not the special genius out in the field, you know, out in the wilderness proclaiming this. And I'm the only one. You'll see that with a lot of uh, furu types, right? They try to claim some stat. I was the only one that called this. No, I was not the only one. If you examine what Kroger did, they began pushing all of the debt that they could in any form way the heck out for their debt structure uh and i'm talking way out to like 2044 like 20 years from now at least they had i haven't looked at their debt structure recently so i that's that's what i'm saying is um i don't know whether we'll see another another 1977 to 1980 if the fed is smart as i was saying earlier that's what they're concerned about, and they won't let up on the gas pedal. They may, they may take all the gas pedal off, like they may not have it down to the floor, but they should keep their foot on it so that we don't experience a 1977 to 1980. So companies that have structured their debt well or have low debt, and companies, on what I was just saying a few minutes previously, that are vertically integrated very well. Because I think these population migrations you're seeing is just indicative of a, of a worldwide phenomenon. I, I had a friend of mine talking about uh, traveling recently and all of the headaches he was, 
he was looking at for just, he's like, man, we used to travel everywhere so easily. We'd go to Prague, we'd go to Europe, we'd go over here, and it was just so easy. It's such a headache now. And I was like, yeah, yeah. And that's, that's not going to stop. So we're going back to a more segmented world. Again, the bear case, right? I'm just trying to put the, the I gave you the bull case for growth factors. You know, will AI and the maturation of AI with commercialized space travel provide a growth that then gets nutty? I don't know, but it's a factor out there. It's a card that's in the deck, and I know what's in the deck, so I got to think about that. Bear case, inflation, my concerns for inflation, and a more, a more segmented world, meaning that if inflation becomes a, a problem again, another 1977 to 1980, you better have a company that has structured their debt well, pushed it out perhaps, which basically provides what we refer to as duration, and which means it gives them time, right, to maneuver, and uh, ver- you know, have a company that's vertically, vertically integrated. All right, let's let's end with my last. Let's let's just do a little bit of review here. Uh, I also wanted to talk about. So we covered growth factors and euphoria, as I just said. We covered my thoughts on inflation and sort of the bear case and problems I see there. A more segmented world. Let's talk about quantifiable metrics and lagging periodicities. A few few days ago, I tweeted out a bit, just sort of like valuation one hundred and one. Uh, you can't look at like how do I put this? The when discussing this new segment, this new whole category, I want to discuss as far as quantifiable metrics and lagging periodicities. Uh, I somewhat already discussed this, right? Don't look at the stock market or euphoria in the S and P five hundred index as your indication that stocks are high. I would say, and again, according to what I just tweeted some a few days back, don't even look at the Wilshire, you know, the Wilshire 5000 as to whether or not stocks are high. There's other like day one, you showed up to valuations and this is what you get taught on day one. What's the environment? There's other things that you can look at. Okay. Uh, When we look at that, and again, I'm going through this as a bit of a review, this last section. When you, when I look at the value of indices in various ratioed terms, I do see, I do see in just repetition and emphasis of the theme, I do see valuations as stretched at the moment. As 1995 to 2000 taught me, they can get a whole lot more stretched. A whole lot more stretched. But they are stretched at the moment, which means you should be very picky. Now, there's a. I've seen a mistake some make that they look at various. I, view, I think it's a mistake anyway. They look at various um, risk off events and say, we have to visit that level again. No, we don't. Like, we got to visit 2008 again. Huh? Hey, this is a wildly different economy. Uh, what was in those indices in 2008, the, the various equities, are no longer in that same index. So why do you think with new equities and in these indices, 
that we have to go back to a level in an economy that's nothing like the economy back then. Right. As a matter of fact, okay, I am the old guy. I think we've established that. GTC Traders is made up of a bunch of old guys <laughs> that are partners. Uh, <laughs> we don't see 2008 as that long ago. You know, if you're in your mid-50s and, you, and you're thinking about 2008, we're like, yeah, man, it seems like it was yesterday. Well, it really wasn't. <laughs> Forget it. Forget 2008, all right? Leave it alone. It's gone. It's done. I've just heard some say that. Like, we have to revisit 2008. No, we don't. That's that's the... Uh, to, to think of a term like if you want to weight the average to to more recent periodicities, I think that's the way to look at it. Okay, um, I do see, so that's sort of a lagging periodicity issue, right? It's like all of the metrics that we look at to sort of try to determine value lag. Again, I'm sitting here trying to think of a way to put this, right? I've got proprietary models that I sort of look at that I'm not giving away. <laughs> I'm just not. Uh, but trying to th think of a way to translate it all. Uh, I'll say this, about six years ago, I'll put it this way. When I looked at value, right? The way I look at where are we at in the scale, let's say zero to 10, right? So zero is you're in a crisis and you should be buying everything with every bit of cash that you have is zero, right? And 10, let's call 10 like 2001, nuts, you should be selling everything and maybe even getting short. And that's when you should be getting short, right? That's 10. Well, about five years ago, when I would think of such a scale, and I thought, okay, what's the crisis level? What is the zero level? I would say, well, that's, that's like levels, the lows of 2011 in the, let's say, the spoos, right? Well, time has passed. We've had different growth factors. There are different macroeconomic factors in play that I have to think about. And therefore, I'm not holding on to 2011 like, no, we got to revisit those lows. It's an ever-progressing market and economy. And you have to weight everything to what has been recent. So when I think about value that way, I have to come up with a new crisis level. What would I see as a crisis level, right? And where you should be buying everything and what's stretched and what, like, what's a five? What's just, okay, business is normal. What's your bent at five, right? So at zero, you should be buying everything. At five, eh, you know, you can just sort of continue with whatever your th current thought process is as to macro at that moment. And at 10, you should definitely be thinking that everything, like you don't want to be buying any value. I think we were at, we're at about a 6.5 to maybe 7. We're not at 10. When I weight everything correctly the way I look at it. Okay? So I, I just wanted to say that in conclusion. I think don't don't pick a specific time period and say we have to revisit those lows. No, we don't. Because each day that passes means you have to give less and less weight to that past event.
like 2008, especially to younger guys. They're like 2008. I think it was nine then. <laughs> like what? <laughs> to old guys like us, it seems like it was just yesterday that we came out of that. Oh, boy, do I got some horror stories of 2008, man. Do I have some stories of that time period? But anyways, uh, you know, so my point being overall is don't pick one date and say, we got to visit that and then just fold your arms and I'm not doing nothing in the market till we visit that low because that's where I think it has to go. No, it does not. Every day that passes means you have to give more weight to the current factors in play. I would place us at about a six, right? Right now for value to seven, maybe 6.7. Let's call it 6.7. The Duke of decimalization has spoken, right? I've, I've added a decimal point to it. So that's where I think we're at for value right now. As far as when I look through my quantifiable metrics. All right. So when it comes to valuations, when it comes to stock indices, when it comes to active and passive and thinking about the markets as a poker table, growth factors and euphoria in the bull case, inflation, population migrations in the bear case, quantifiable metrics, lagging periodicities, I think, you know, the value is not an index. Even if you're looking at something like the Wilshire, you have to take more into to account. Okay. I, I think we've gone through that. We've gone through our thoughts. A uh, little bit of housekeeping here. What does GTC traders have going on? We're still so new. We're still so new. We're still setting up shop. If you, if you walk into our metaphoric shop, there's nothing on the shelves. Everything's bare. We know it. We have other stuff going on that's not this. Okay? So we're not in any gargantuan hurry to do it because we, we're not one of these furus. We don't need to. All right? It's coming. So as far as housekeeping, what GTC Traders has going on, We've got more on the way. We're still so new, like we said. We haven't even decorated the shop properly, to, to use the metaphor. Uh, but we are still small, which carries an advantage in that, hey, any feedback or comments you want to give us or topics you would like to see us discuss, let us know. Leave a comment. We're still small, so we can read all of the, all of the, uh, the feedback. We'll have more in the way of podcasts. They'll be released and podcasts will come out when they are done. None of this, you got to have a podcast on Monday or any. No, 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 no. I, I very much believe in the Dan Carlin approach. If you've got something to say and you know what you want to say, specifically how you want to say it, and you think you can put out something of quality, then say it. If you can't, then don't. So you may get two podcasts, five podcasts in a month. You may get no podcasts in a month. We will speak when there is something to what we feel we have to say or enunciate our thoughts on, on, as far as things. Uh, we would like to do some interviews. Uh, we've got I've, we've got like five or six ideas for interviews. Some of the folks we haven't approached yet. Some we have. We'll get to that. 
Uh, we'll interview some of the folks here at GTC Traders. That's been an idea. Um, you already know, or some of you recognize who I am. Uh, there will be an interview of me and an interview of others. And uh, so that's on the way. We will eventually be doing premium content uh, for members, but we're not there yet. And we don't mind not being there yet. That's fine. We'll get there when we get there. But for now, all of this, going over the housekeeping, what we got going on, we're still small. We know when you walk into our metaphoric shop, there's not much here. There's, there's an old Bible proverb that says, do not despise the day of small beginnings. We actually enjoy them. So, but as far as the rest of it, uh, as far as our thoughts, as far as markets as a poker table, everybody doesn't think like you. As far as, what else did we cover here? Oh, don't look at stock indices. By God, don't look at the S&P 500 index <laughs> as a, a view of what is value. Uh, don't, you know, get, get locked into one particular bias. Look at the bear case, right? We talked about inflation, segmented world, vertical integration, having to push the debt out. Are we going to experience a 77 to 80 now that we've had this lull in inflation? We've, we've examined our thoughts as to the bull case, AI, combinations of AI with other growth factors. There has to be a maturation process, a euphoria can take place, which all ties into our belief, our scientifically based belief, by the way, mathematically speaking, that you cannot predict the future. That's why you have to consider all sides. And don't get married to any particular year uh, you know, with some sort of lagging periodicity view that we have to approach that level again. No, we don't. No, we do not. And so with all of that, that has been what it's always been. Anything we've said, we, we, we could be wrong. We could be right. It's just been what it always is. Matter of fact, we would say research things for yourself. Anything we've mentioned, we encourage you. Don't rely on us. Research it for yourself. It's what you should do. Because at the end of this, this has been what it's always been. It's simply been our thoughts, not yours, which are good until they're canceled. GTC. For whatever the heck date is, as always, stay safe, trade well, and remember that love doesn't cost a dime.